Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. By now, I'm sure you know me. I'm your host, and here we talk about life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. On today's show, I have Rabbi Wendy Geffen. She is the senior rabbi at North Shore Congregation Israel, a prominent reform synagogue in the suburbs of Chicago. Rabbi Geffen is a tireless leader and is passionate about how Jewish wisdom adds meaning to the lives of her members and enables us all to a better to better our world every day. Beyond her leadership at her congregation, Rabbi Geffen is the leader in the na- in the Jewish community both both locally and nationally and is a frequent commentator in the community to the press on issues of national importance. I am honored to have Rabbi Geffen here on today's show as we begin to explore how various religions understand life and death. Welcome, Rabbi Geffen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I know this isn't going to be a brief conversation because I have so many questions personally, but can you kind of give us a brief if you can do brief, um, <laughs> synopsis of what Judaism tells us about how we live a meaningful life. Sure, I'll do my best. Um, I think in many respects, Judaism was really set up to create a framework for just that. You know, Judaism is a religion and a tradition and a history and a culture that's really built around this life, uh, how we live in this life. It's not, although Judaism has its kind of theories about what happens after this life, most everything in it is focused on how to live an ethical life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life here and now, and not something that has like delayed gratification, meaning you sort of build up to it by the time you're older, but it affords opportunities to experience life in meaningful ways, really from the very beginning. Um, And all of that is sort of um, brought to bear through what Jewish tradition would call the mitzvot, the commandments. Um, But regardless of how literally you take that, ultimately the heart of each of these commandments is the idea um, that you can transform something ordinary into something extraordinary, something mundane into something sacred. And these aren't high, inaccessible experiences. They're made manifest in the really mundane. So for example, in Judaism, there's a blessing you can say before you eat any kind of food. Um, And the idea being that we as human beings, and forget as human beings, as animals, have to eat, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of existence. Mm -hmm. It's not part of a meaningful existence, but it's part of existence. It's something we have to do. But as humans, we have the choice to consider what are the things that we do as humans that differentiate us from everybody else? And eating is one of the greatest areas of kind of understanding how that could be different because we can be mindless when we eat. We can just consume whatever food we want to consume, shove it down and continue on our way. 
Or we can stop and consider um, that every time we put something in our mouth, think of all of the different really miracles that have happened to bring that to bear, right? So like if we think about an apple, something as simple as an apple, forget just tracing it back through all the steps that apple has had to go through to get to us, but even from the very beginning that that was just a seed and somehow it was planted in the ground, it knew to grew, it knew to grow into something else, it became a tree, it blossomed more fruit, you know, and all of that is, um, whether you understand it as part of nature or part of something larger, um, either way, there's something pretty majestic about that idea. And when you consume an apple, if you've given kind of thought to that before you take a bite of it, Mm -hmm. the experience of eating it is going to be completely different. And at the same time, I think Judaism understood that realistically, you're not going to think about that, all of those different steps every time before you eat something. Um, So the tradition invited this idea of blessings that before you eat an apple, you might say a blessing that says, blessed are you, God, creator of the fruit of the tree, which brings you immediately out of the instinctual, well, I'm just going to eat this apple kind of mentality and reminds you that when you eat that apple, it's connecting you to something much larger and more expansive than yourself. Uh, A tree, nature, if you will, God, whatever those parts of it are. And all of a sudden your experience, which would have just been eating an apple, becomes something much more extraordinary. So when we talk about kind of mindfulness, right, that's a very hot topic in in secular in the yes. secular world yeah um and there's a lot of talk right now about people turning away from more organized religion and turning towards their own version of spirituality mm-hmm. and i think that was a beautiful illustration of how religion can is is just that in the way that we've kind of we've taken the words and shifted them a little bit. Yes. But ultimately we're still encouraging people to do the same thing. Absolutely. I often tell people that like, you know, Judaism and any other number of ancient religions were really the first creators of mindfulness technology. They created structures, language, form to remind us that we aren't just animals. We have the ability to think, to create meaning to make something not just about life and death, but really about what happens in between. Um, Thank you. Oh, yeah, that was like a little <laughs> shout out to you. Right. So, um, but it, but in all seriousness, you know that that idea um, that we aren't just a date of birth and a date of death, but the stuff that matters is that space in between, that dash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Ultimately, religion, and I think, and, and certainly Judaism, are really designed to give tools so that you can transform that experience into something that counts for something, into something that is meaningful, into something that you can leave a legacy about. Mm-hmm. Um, and we might repackage it today in different language, or it might take different forms. Um, but I will say that there's something to the original technology, if right. you were, 
that reminds us, and this is what this, if I were to have any critique about modern day mindfulness is, or quote unquote, modern day mindfulness, um, is that we often fall into the modern day lie that um, really the only thing that matters is us. This is really about me. Um, And it's never just about me. It's never just about this moment in time. We're connected to everything that's ever come before us and everything that will ever come after us and everyone that is around us. We're not isolated. We're not sovereign selves. We are organic and interconnected. Um, And sometimes when we uproot ourselves from the roots, whatever our roots are, we kind of consciously or unconsciously allow ourselves to separate ourselves Mm -hmm. from these deeper, what I believe are richer waters. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we're really interested in mindful living, it demands us to see beyond just the close-up view we have of our own life, Mm -hmm. our own experience. It has to be about how I'm connected to everything else. And that's the awareness um, that any deep tradition would invite us into. And I think certainly Judaism does. Right. And I think that when we talk about when people have shared their experiences of on this podcast of either near death experience where they come back and are, I mean, that's kind of the best proof we have right now is people coming back and saying, I have this experience and they always describe it as feeling deeply connected yes. to everything, yes. like expansive yes. and connected yes. to the whole, to, to everyone, to everything, to source, to God, however yes. you, whatever, right. Whatever, however one frames it. And I always, I try to explain to people who are interested in Judaism that that notion of the unity of all things is rooted so foundationally um, into really every aspect of Jewish tradition from the time we can, uh, from the time it was recorded. So um, the notion that there's one God, for example, in Jewish tradition um, isn't necessarily meant to be understood as there's some isolated thing called God, which is separate from everything Mm -hmm. else. The idea of the unity of God is that it is the ultimate interconnected unity of all things. There's no way anything could be separated from anything else. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like that's the electricity that keeps everything together, like gravity. Right. Um, Right. and, and, And our greatest... Hope is to realize the potential of that unity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when people have memories in particular from past experiences, um, how they might call it past lives or memories that are vestigial or things like that, mm-hmm. um, these are great um, proofs or testimonies to that reality in a way that we humans might be able to experience and understand mm-hmm. for ourselves. So how does Judaism explain the afterlife or not? So um, in in Judaism, there are a lot of different answers to the question, what happens after we die? Um, and they're answered differently throughout Jewish history. Um, and in some 
I guess in some respects, they reflect the reality of the period of time or history in which they were articulated. So often, you know, certain theories of what happens after you die um, might be different in a period of great oppression for the Jewish people than they would in a period of great flourishing for the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. What unites all of them, though, from really the beginning to the end, and this is often, um, I think, misunderstood in the in modern times in, in a general in a general Jewish sense, is that although Judaism may be focused on focused on this life here and now, um, Judaism has always understood that existence in its largest sense is beyond this moment, this life here and now. Um, that the soul has some sort of eternal quality, whatever we understand as the soul, mm -hmm. whether that's energy, whether that's personality and character, whether that's embodied form or not, mm -hmm. right? Like there might be variants about that mm -hmm. through time, but always there's the notion that it endures in some way. And to the same extent, it wasn't just created out of nothing, right? right? Like from a most scientific sense, you know, whatever it is that's me, right? That makes up the me who I am, um, you know, I'm made of the dust of the stars, so are you. We're all made from the stuff of the universe mm -hmm. that somehow makes its way throughout time into us, right? Um, and that's not a religious idea. That's a scientific right. idea. Right. Judaism would attest to the same notion, just not in those concrete terms. It would say, you know, we are part of the unity of all things, what it would call God. Every person is embedded with that image, that spirit, that idea, and that isn't finite. It it endures. It was it, it's existed long before us. It will continue to exist long after us. In certain Jewish mystical circles, you find theories about what happens after you we die that are very reminiscent of like um, reincarnation. Mm -hmm. So like. In, in certain Jewish mystical traditions, there is the idea that at the beginning of time, whatever that was, whenever that was, and it, that shouldn't be understood as a point, a specific point either. Mm -hmm. It's more of an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. But whatever that was in that experience, um, there were a finite number of souls created. And those souls are constantly being churned around in what we understand to be the universe. Mm -hmm. And they manifest themselves differently in different points in time in life based on, some mystical circles would say, based on how a soul manifests itself in existence in a lifetime, right? Okay. So very similar to what we think of as like a common understanding of reincarnation. You know, mm -hmm. you live a good life, maybe you'll come back as a more advanced soul. You right. don't live a good life, maybe you come back as a less advanced soul. Right. That sort of idea. There's a very, a very similar notion in certain circles of Jewish mysticism. Mm -hmm. Others will say... They're, like they're, Kabbalah? Is it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, so in, in Kabbalah, or Kabbalah has come to mean a lot of different things. So in its... what. I often call it Jewish mysticism just because it's bigger than that. There mm -hmm. are any number of different Jewish mystical practices, Jewish mystical traditions. Kabbalah would certainly be one of them, um, but there are many, some more popular than others. Um, you know, we can thank Madonna for popularizing, <laughs> right. you know, what she would say Kabbalah, and I think it's an interesting adaptation 
of the technology of Jewish mysticism, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if how she takes it is necessarily particular to Judaism. I think she has she and whatever groups are a part of that kind of have expanded upon that in mm-hmm. in a in their own way. Um, but in any of these variant traditions, there are these ideas of the soul's enduring quality, and it it can line up really perfectly with and justify, if you need to use that word, the idea that, well, sure, we've had past lives, past existences. Our souls must have manifest themselves as other things at other points in time. There's the question of, well, how come some people remember and some people don't? Right, right. Right. I often tell the story, my daughter, when she was like two, um, we were driving somewhere. My, My kids both sort of spoke early and so my my daughter at two in the back of seat of our, my car um said to me mommy remember when I wasn't me and you weren't you but we knew each other and I was like what <laughs> and then she said um yeah I wasn't me you weren't you but there was sand and I built buildings and I knew you and that was all she said. Oh, my And I, I tried yeah. to, like, get more out of right. her because it was just such a funny fantasy, I assumed, at the time. Um, and so that's what you made of it at the time. Was well, a, was in, a in just in the moment, right? right? But then as, as that sort of settled into me, I was like, wow, you know, maybe she's having some kind of memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm never one to block any possibility out. I always sort of hold them as 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 things that could be truth. Um, But that's certainly not an experience that I had had, but she was having it. Right. And um, she, at this point, you know, she's now 10, um, and she doesn't remember. To her now, this is a story. But until she was about four, she kept having this same kind of reminiscence Mm -hmm. that would come up from time to time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's about when, four or five, when you see those, if if kids have past life memories, you see them sort of fall away. Exactly. Because our, our executive functioning, our frontal lobe takes over about what is possible, what isn't. You know, we start to think. Exactly. Well, we we bound ourselves. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So it was, but that experience was probably the closest in my own personal life that, that I've ever come to witnessing that in, in a, in a, with someone who was intimately important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, although I've had any number of congregants over, you know, the last 18 years who will regularly share experiences with me um, of feeling the presence of a loved one, um, seeing them, being visited by them in particular, like in their sleep and Mm -hmm. dreams. And all of that, you know, these are all possibilities from a Jewish framework. You know, these stories are stories that are commonly told, even in the most, I'd say, academic traditional senses of Judaism, you know, in the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, um, there are stories of rabbis who are visited by their deceased rabbis in their sleep, in their dreams, and perhaps their stories or perhaps their memories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's very woven into the Ab- thread absolutely. of absolutely. the religion in that yeah. way. I'd say that, you know, the difference from a Jewish frame is there's not a lot of focus on an idea of heaven or hell, right? In the in the way that we kind of think of that today in a in a 
I think it's somewhat uniquely American, but in an, in an American modern sense of those ideas, you know, mm-hmm. like a Dante hell. Right, right, where we're going to burn. Where, where there's some, or there's a place where you're eternally punished. Mm-hmm. There's not, as far as I know, a Jewish place for that. Um, that I guess there's always a possible place for something where I haven't learned about it, but as far as I know, that doesn't exist. Um, and, and, Although there certainly are concepts of something we might think of as heaven, um, in Judaism often those are articulated a little bit differently than what we might think of, you know, people becoming angels and floating around mm-hmm. in the clouds somewhere. Mm-hmm. The pearly gates, you know, that that's not necessarily a Jewish image. Um, but there are understandings of... Um, a reality that after we die, our souls return to God in some sort of perfected reality, whether that's something that happens immediately, whether that's something that you have to wait for a Messiah to come to catalyze, Mm -hmm. all of that exists. It's just not talked about a lot in mainstream Jewish circles, at least in mainstream non-Orthodox Jewish circles. I can't speak for the Orthodox circles. And why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I think some of that is the reality of like the rationalized world, in particular since the Industrial Revolution and really in like the mid to late part of the 20th century and certainly now in the 21st century where, you know, we have quote unquote science. So Mm -hmm. we can, you know, the the best way that I can think about it, and I'm being sarcastic, is we can outsmart these truths. You know, these might be wistful ideas that we have, Mm -hmm. but science shows us that, you know, humans live and humans die. Animals live and animals die. Right. Um, The physical body of that. Yeah, exactly. But even that... You know, even that is such a one or two dimensional understanding of science, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, take it, separate it from anything that we might associate with God. You know, our life cycles here in just this physical earth are connective and we really are a part of everything else. We become parts of other things Mm -hmm. in our own existence. So it's always interesting to me that, you know, that's something that isn't a part of our conversation. And I I think the other reason it's not talked about is people are really uncomfortable thinking and talking about dying. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, it is, (laughs) many people would say that's why religion was created, was to be an opiate for the masses, right? Like an something to make you feel better about the fact that you're going to die, our finitude, our corporeality. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so interesting because as you're talking and I'm thinking about our move away from religion and towards spirituality, it's actually a move back towards religion. It, you know, we're just, yeah. we're just like you said, yeah. we're just calling it something right. different. Rebranding, repackaging. Right, right. Yeah. but really we're all sort of seeking that, yes. how to make meaning Correct. given the fact that we're going to die. Exactly. In a physical body and, and, this time around. And that is what makes us human. Right. Right, to, to deny our need to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, to deny our need to create meaning is to deny our uniqueness as humans. Otherwise, we really are just animals. Mm-hmm. We live, we consume, we right. maybe we reproduce, right. and, and we die. Right. Um, and right. we can choose that. That's one of the privileges of humanity. Mm-hmm. We could choose to see life that way. Mm-hmm. 
but what I would call our soul or maybe what anthropologists and sociologists would come to understand as some sort of unique human need that evolves out of time is to construct meaning, to make meaning. Mm -hmm. It's why we tell stories. Mm -hmm. It gives us some kind of context through which to navigate our lives. Right. And, you know, God willing, that story helps us navigate it for the better, for ourselves, for other people, for the world, what, whatever our directive may be. Mm-hmm. And so this denial or fear around death you see everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. I I don't see it, um, you know, that's something interesting, like in human development with young children, I don't see it until they're right around that same time, four or five, Mm -hmm. right? It starts to change. probably lose their connection in some way to the soul. Exactly. Exactly. But I will say that I think we do ourselves a disservice by not talking about the fact that we are corporeal, right? The fact that whatever it is that is this existence, it isn't eternal in in this current form. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether for someone it means we live and we die and that's it, or for another person it means we live in this form, we die, and then there's a something that comes after. I don't think we do ourselves any favors by making it a taboo topic to talk about. All that does is stoke more fear. Right, um, right. I I always, there are many things that are awful about being a child of a rabbi, and I feel like my children, you know, have (laughs) suffered any number of grievances for that. As all of our children, I I guess, in in that respect. Parent, child of psychology. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But one of the gifts of it, I do think, is that in our family, you know, death is really a part of our common everyday life. My kids have known about funerals and shiva and eulogies and memory and sadness and grief and love in any number of ways since the time they were born. It's just a part of how we are. And I do at least now, at least for where they are up until now, see a level of comfort that they have Mm -hmm. in talking about it, being curious about it, um, expressing if they are frightened or upset. And more than that, talking about, well, I wonder what's going to be after, you know, just being curious and not feeling censored around bringing up the ideas um, that I, I think will serve them well. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly better than if they felt that they couldn't talk about it. Right. Because this will happen you know, when people, I often joke, as many clergy people do, that none of us get out alive. Right, right. the same thing. So, you know, th- it, is, it is one of the only things that connects us to every other human being. We are born and we and die. And every, every other, every other animal, animal. Any every right. other existed, created right. thing. Um, and it has the potential to be wonderfully unifying. And wonderfully motivating. Exactly, exactly. Um yeah, and I mean, that 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 motivation, you know, e- that idea of even the motivation of our finitude or our corporeality is something like that Judaism works hard to ingrain. That's what Yom Kippur is all about. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be a day that forces you to remember that you will die mm-hmm. so that you can live. Right. <laughs> and the words are always so powerful. If yes. you really listen yes. to them, yes. they do kind of shake you to your core in yes. that sense. Yes, like, and, you know. and we're intended to, mm-hmm. right? For, but 
not for the purpose of leaving you paralyzed and terrified. Right. But for the purpose of motivating you to, you know, not to be cheesy, but to live your best life now. Mm -hmm. Make the choice to do what you need to do now. Repair relationships now. Mm -hmm. Be the best now. Live ethically now. Ask for forgiveness now. Because we as humans want to control everything. Um... But there are actually very few things we can really control. And often we confuse what we can control with what we can't. Mm -hmm. Um, So we abnegate ourselves of our responsibilities to atone or forgive. But that's something that's actually very much in our control to do. And we spend a lot of time fixating on when are we going to die. But most of the time... And trying to... Ward that off or, you know, you only live once, so do crazy things, whatever it is. But those are, you know, those environments are not necessarily um, our best uses of control, nor can we actually control most of that stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that that's what an awareness of, what awareness of our current life existence experience is can really help us um, with to, to... to better live and also to better leave a legacy because that's, you know, take away, take away everything. Let's say like, I don't buy it, any of this. Mm -hmm. I don't buy anything. I think nothing's going to happen to me after I die. That's it. It's over. No more me in any way, shape or form, no, no more energy of me, nothing, right? Everyone who knew me will remember me. For whatever period of time it will be. And short, for whatever it is, they'll exactly. remember me for. And, and, exactly. And they will carry whatever I do, did in this life, mm-hmm. and it will impact them. In particular, the people who were closest to me, mm-hmm. whether they chose that or whether that's just what they were born into. Um, and we do definitively live on that way right. for the good or for the bad. And we have to be responsible in that respect, I think. I think that's one of the things that Judaism also teaches us, or any decent religion will teach, is the idea that our actions count for something in this life and in the next. It might not be our next life, but it's whatever the next generation is, the next you know experience of life will be for everyone we leave behind. Um, and that stuff matters. You know, it can change the way other lives fall out Mm -hmm. because of how we choose to be um, or what we choose to see or not Mm -hmm. here and now. Right. So I think that we're going to wrap up this this today's episode and then we're going to talk right after this, but it will be next week (laughs) um, about an experience that you had. But I think what you're leaving certainly me with today and. So just to give everybody a little background, which I meant to do at the beginning, but sort of forgot um, or got a little nervous because we're sitting face to face and it's rare that I'm face to face with someone and not on a camera, is that um, Rabbi Geffen is the rabbi at the synagogue in which I grew up, but not currently am a member. And I've always been so moved by what you say, by how you say it, by how you motivate, by how you inspire. You gave the eulogies at both my grandparents' funerals, which was... Talk about leaving a legacy. I know, I know. 
Yeah. You guys will hear that eulogy at some point because I'm saving my eulogies to, for a podcast. So, um, but yeah, and, and have always been just someone that I respect and admire. And if I lived closer, would be here and be a friend. You're in a great place. <laughs> but just, so thank you so much for your incredible wisdom and insights thank today. You so much. And we're going to hear more from you next week. So thank you. Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.